Hi, I'm Billy Shore. Welcome back to Add Passion and Stir. It's our weekly conversation about food, passion, and making a difference in the world. And we have two guests today who have helped us uh, do that in a really big way. Renee and John Grisham, thank you so much for being with us. Happy to be here. Hello, Billy. Well, I, I, I'm so looking forward to this conversation. You know, we're having it at, at a pretty amazing time. We're about a year into this pandemic, and it's been brutal for everybody, no exceptions. Um, and our work, uh, as you know, Renee, from being on the board of directors of Share Our Strength, and as you know, John, from being so involved in what we do, has probably been at this particular time more important than ever. But we're starting to see um, some signs, I think, that we're going to get back to what we were doing before the pandemic in terms of really uh, aiming at ending childhood hunger in the United States. That's always been the mission of Share Our Strength's No Kid Hungry campaign. And I'm convinced that when we get to the other side of this pandemic, we'll actually be in a stronger position to do that than we've ever been before. We have uh, well over 100,000 new first-time donors who have been attracted to our work and have been supporting us, and I think many of them will stay with us. President Biden's stimulus bill and rescue plan also includes a child tax credit that is estimated to lift 10 million kids out of poverty, which will directly affect the number of kids who need the kind of anti-hunger efforts that we aim at. So as grim a time as this has been, uh, as this has been with the vaccines coming and with Congress uh, acting uh, in a bigger way than it ever has before and with an unprecedented level of generosity that both of you have been a part of, um, I think we're going to see a point in this country where we still have a lot of problems to deal with, but uh, childhood hunger is going to be on a path uh, to being solved. And uh, you've both been involved in that in a, in a big way. I've got to start by uh, thanking you. We kind of got together, uh, it must have been about five years ago now, and you've gotten more and more involved coming with us to the, to the uh, Rio Grande Valley border, looking at our work firsthand all around the country, posting us and helping us uh, meet more folks in your community, whether it was in Virginia or North Carolina. Uh, two places where you uh, split your time and donating generously. And so it's just, uh, you, you've been a, a really special and a truly transformational uh, family in, in our work. And uh, I would love to just start by hearing you both say a little bit about how you got engaged with Share Our Strength and the No Kid Hungry campaign, why you got engaged with Share Our Strength and the No Kid Hungry campaign. Thank you, Billy. John and I first started thinking about childhood hunger when um, our daughter Shay started teaching. We had not really come face to face with this other than to read things in the newspaper that were not close to home. When she started teaching, we were very much in the classroom with her and involved in helping her succeed in this passion that she had to teach children. That said, we started to realize that children weren't getting breakfast, which was very disturbing because we knew that schools served breakfast, but sometimes children came in after the bell, their bus was late, maybe somebody overslept and they came in late. And so Shay started saying, I, I might need some help with breakfast baskets. We, we started helping her and we realized that this was probably a bigger 
problem than we realized. So that was some years ago. And five, six years ago, we were um, talking to our friend Dorothy McAuliffe, who was then First Lady of Virginia. And there was a campaign for No Kid Hungry in Virginia to establish it as a model, an example of how you can change the way we view feeding children at school. And for the first time we saw, John and I saw a chance to get involved in a way that could solve hunger, especially at school. And Shea School, Renee, was in was in North Carolina? Yes, it was in Raleigh. It was a leadership magnet school, uh, very diverse, wide range of nationalities, teachers who were very involved in administration that was very supportive at the same time. Um, hunger can sometimes go unnoticed or unacknowledged. And, and what I've found with No Kid Hungry is that's not the case. It can change. Meals can be served in an alternative way. But sometimes the schools just need somebody to suggest a different way and something that adapts with their, their system. And that's what you guys do beautifully and seamlessly. And um, supporting that effort was great because Virginia was a great model. And um, then you approached us and said, we want to take it nationwide. What a great concept. That was our first experience with hunger in schools. It was actually sort of, uh, it was sort of emotional when our daughter called home the first night and uh, she was very upset. She's, she's uh, fairly emotional anyway. We had helped her get her classroom ready. She was very excited about teaching her first year and she called every night to you know, tell us what was going on. She's three hours away from where we are. And she was upset because there, she realized she had kids who were coming to school hungry and not getting a breakfast. And uh, some of them would not say anything. There was a stigma attached to it. They were late for school. They had, they had to go to the cafeteria and sit in a certain section. Or just all these problems they had with the approach. And this was a very fine public school, by the way, in Raleigh. And uh, we, we had never thought about hunger before as a, as a family. I've never been hungry. We, we, it's just it's not an issue that we thought was out there. And so we, you know, we got involved. Renee went charging in as usual and, and worked with our daughter in the school. And, you know, we learned more and more about the problem. And uh, over a period of years, we uh, were slowly got involved. And Renee uh, hooked up with, uh, as she said, Dorothy McAuliffe. And there was your push, Billy, No Kid Hungry, to um, raise a bunch of money and try to get all states on the same page as far as getting the food to the kids. And you told us early on, Billy, and this is something I'll always remember, there's plenty of food in this country. Uh, it's not a question of lack of food. There's too much food. Um, but the problem is getting the food and the money spent at the, at the governmental levels. The, the money is spent to, to buy the food to feed the kids. And there's, I, I call it bureaucracy, call it whatever you want to call it, but the the uh, framework is not always there to get the food on the table for these hungry kids. And that's what No Kid Hungry does is provide assistance and ways and programs to get the actual food uh, in the schools. And, and so we signed up and here we are, and we're uh, committed and we, you have convinced us and we have convinced each other and uh, that this is a problem that uh, one problem that can be solved in this country because we do have plenty of food. 
you've also convinced uh, a lot of other people because I've been fortunate to uh, be the guest of at least uh, two uh, small dinners in, in your homes. And it, you know, I got the sense that you've been part of a generous community of people who care about a wide range of social issues and you've brought some of them to your home. I'm sure they brought you to their homes. How do you think about, I guess, the opportunity to reach out to others to help them make some of the journey that you made, you know, have that same trajectory of learning about the issue? And how do you uh, sort out uh, all of the, the, you must get a tremendous number of of philanthropic requests. How do you prioritize? How do you decide what's important? Um, Somebody supports something you care about. There's probably some obligation to something support something they care about. How does how do you guys do that as a family? Yeah, we we, you know we we only get about a hundred requests per week to you know to write checks. You know we we don't advertise our giving. In fact, we do just the opposite. Uh, We try to keep it uh, quiet, anonymous, private. Uh, but once you get the reputation uh, as being generous people, uh, then you get a lot of opportunities, and that, there's nothing wrong with that. And we live in a great town, Charlottesville, where there's a lot of uh, nonprofit work is just uh, contagious around here. There's a lot of it, and people are – if there's a problem, somebody around here is going to start a nonprofit and take care of the problem or try to or address it. And so there's a lot of um, that activity, and that makes it, in, the community great. But – yeah, you know, the payback is always tough. If you if you have a fundraiser, invite your friends over. They're gonna they're gonna invite you to their fundraiser, and so that's the way that's the way it goes. And we feel very lucky to be able to take part in some of the giving. We we have some loose guidelines though. We like to support education. We like to support women, housing, and social injustice. And John, as you know, is very involved in the Innocence Project. We because of this pandemic have really narrowed our focus with hunger as as you know and housing because there is not a lot of affordable housing in the areas in which we live and so that has become a real priority while we do get asked a lot and we we do give when it comes to prioritizing we we do that in just that way. And childhood hunger is one of our major priorities. I would say it's the top priority right now, wouldn't you say? Yes. And it's for the past five years and, and yes. for the next, uh, well, the foreseeable future, five years down the road, you can't look much more than five years down the road when you're thinking about giving. But uh, I think the foreseeable future, it's uh, hunger, childhood hunger is going to be our, our, our main focus, our top priority. And I have to tell you, um, Billy, Five years ago, we got involved with um, Share Strength No Kid Hungry. Our grandson turns five years old on Sunday, and having a grandchild really makes this personal because you start to think about the future, and you start to think about children as your future, and um, holding that grandson for the first time and thinking about young mothers without a support system makes you really start to think about what you need to do and get involved. Yeah, you know, Renee, as you're talking about kids and support systems, yesterday, I, uh, or two days ago, I did a town hall virtual, of course, with uh, 38 of the young moms who work at Share Our Strength, who are home with kids and who, um, of course, are concerned about their 
kids not being in school, concerned about the kids' lack of socialization. They're concerned about their kids' just health during the the pandemic. And, you know, it struck me that they're, they were so amazing because they're unbelievably conscientious as moms and parents, and they're unbelievably conscientious as colleagues that share our strength trying to put in a full day's work, which is very hard to do when you have young kids running around the house and there's all that tension and stress. But so many of them said something similar to what you've said, which is it, it also has just increased, heightened their sensitivity to just how vulnerable kids are in the best of times, let alone difficult times like these. So whether it's kids or grandkids, it really, really does bring it home. And, you know, you're talking about kind of the personal impact of this. I want to talk about another kind of personal dimension of uh, this, which I find so uh, kind of inspiring and special, unique, honestly, which is kind of your partnership, Johnson and Renee's. John, you're the the author of, I think, 43 books now, unless I've lost count. The last one I read was A Time for Mercy. Um, they're all, they've all been missed. Uh, what, what, what did I miss? What did I miss? I'm just joking. I think, I think they're, yeah, 43 or 44. After a while, you lose count. Uh, well, it's pretty amazing. And, and my understanding is that Renee's been involved in all of them. And I know that you're involved in every, you know, philanthropic decision we talked to Renee about. How do you, how do you, how do you guys work together and how do you do it so well? There's a lot, there's a lot of bickering, uh, a, lot of a, a lot of conflict, but we, we, we get through it. Uh, Renee's been like a first editor of all your books? You know, this is the writing season for me. I started booking January, a legal thriller, uh, and give myself six months to write the book. I get a lot of work done January, February, March, April when the weather's lousy and can't go anywhere. This is pre-COVID uh, in a normal year. We During were, COVID, he he writes all the time. <laughs> can't, can't go anywhere. Uh, but last weekend, we were driving somewhere. I forget. We weren't. It couldn't have been far. Uh, and we were talking about some plot points in the current book. She's read a hundred pages of it, so she knows what the story is. And we're trying to we're trying to iron out a couple of plot points and characters that that I need some help with right now. And we, we do this. We, this goes back and forth all the time. And we don't. We do not always agree. Occasionally, we do. Uh, but uh, it's just, it's a process. And then when I, she won't see it again until I'm probably uh, close to being finished. It's really kind of hard to enjoy a novel when you have to read it over six months and the writer's always making changes. And so she, she gets tired of that. So uh, we get down to the end, she'll read uh, three fourths of it. In the last month or so, it's, it's just almost chapter by chapter as I'm finishing up and it goes back and forth. She loves to read with a big red magic marker and just write all kinds of little snippy comments about my <laughs> fiction and, and cutting cutting comments about my female characters. And anyway, this has been going on now for over 30 years, so we know how to survive it. Renee, well, have the female characters improved? No. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Believe me, they have and, improved. <laughs> and, and, and you get the you get the credit? Well, I don't know if I get the credit. Let's just say I've been hypercritical in the past. So I'd like to think the learning curve, while slow, at least we're getting there. She yelled at me one time and she said, uh, this, this female, this woman really is really awful. And we, so we we're having a discussion and she, I remember she yelled, why can't you just think like a woman? And I said, well, who in God's name can do that if you're not a, if you're a man? I can't do that. Well, you're, you're lucky well, because, because, you know, Rosemary once said to me that I was, the, and I think she meant it as a compliment, but I'm, I still haven't decided to take it that way. She said, I'm the least male male she's ever met. And I was like, well, thanks. Thanks a lot. Yeah. No. 
I think that was a compliment, but I have to tell you, my, my criticisms are not often well-received, um, but we do have a good time doing it. Yeah. We, we laugh a lot. I'm sure this question you get asked all the time, John. So I apologize for asking it again, but you know, with 43 books, you talk about writing season, like you're going to go out and bag a deer. Uh, and I guess you always have, but, but do, do, does it ever not come? Do you ever, do you ever get to six months and it's like, I need three more or do you, do you, do you always get it done? You seem very, very disciplined in your approach. You know, Billy, no, I've never missed a deadline. And, and, and the reason I have not is because by the time I start the book in January, I've, I've pretty much talked it to death between the two of us. Um, I've never started a book that she didn't like. Uh, wait, wait. Well, wait, okay, one time. Wait, you one did. Time. I threw, I threw a manuscript across okay. the room. Okay. Oh, that's that was, <laughs> the, across the room. To, forget that. Yeah. A selective memory there. <laughs> she I threw, did. She I threw it, threw it across me. the room. I thought she was throwing it at me. Um, <laughs> so by by the time I get the start, you know, we I know what the story is going to be, and and I'm off and running. And when I start writing, uh, you know, I've got the story. Uh, the I've got it outlined. I know what's going to happen. You know, I had this real rule of thumb, you know, don't ever write the first scene until you know the last scene. Uh, so if you if you always know where you're going with a novel or a short story or anything, or anything you write, uh, it's kind of hard to get lost. And so I've never gotten halfway through and quit. Um, I did write 100 pages one time of a novel I thought was brilliant. Um, she read it and she said, I hate every single person in this book. And she threw the manuscript in the floor. <laughs> I thought she was throwing it at me. I picked it up and I said, okay, I'm going to show you. So I sent it to my, my, uh, my agent in New York, my editor, same guy. And, uh, he, his response was uh, not quite as bad as hers, but he didn't like it either. So I can't fight both of them. And I didn't write the book. Thank God. <laughs> yeah, that, 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 that would be a pretty formidable battle. So, uh, okay, so, so that's how the, the books come together. Does, does the philanthropy come together in a similar way in terms of you talking things through, deciding together? Um, who, who drives it? How does it work? It does. We very much do it together. Um, I have... Uh, my priorities and he has his and you really have to put forth the case but we are almost always on the same page um, I can't think of but maybe one or two in which we weren't but we ultimately compromised and figured it out we really do work together on this and we have common goals and respect each other's choices when it comes to the innocence project John drives that bus when he tells me what he wants to do, we usually do it. Um, and he's pretty good about that when it comes to the things that I want to do. Um, we, we have big conversations and we don't all make snappy decisions, but we have, um, we have a, a common goal there. We, uh, we made a decision a long time ago not to have a, like a real foundation. We have a foundation. It's, it's the two of us. And it's a small foundation and it can it move, it moves quickly because we write every check and uh, we review every request. And we get, again, we get a lot of them. Most of them we say no to. Uh, but uh, we, we said, well, we're not going to have a staff and a director and start funding a lot of overhead. We're going to do it ourselves. And we sit down together probably eight times a year, six or eight times a year and go through the request, look at the uh, commitments we have, there are probably uh, 
what you say, 40 or 50 ongoing nonprofits that we've been supporting for many years. They get an annual check. Uh, we try to keep that number low. Uh, but it, again, most of it's local, and we try to help out the local people around here. Uh, so, but it's it's the two of us, and we, you know, we, we, I don't, I can't recall ever making a gift to um, something that I wished we hadn't done. Uh, there's something she wanted that I didn't like. If 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 she doesn't like something I'm doing, I won't do it, and vice versa. Uh, but if, she, if, we, if we feel strongly about it, we can eventually bring the other one around. But there's a lot of uh, good, healthy uh, discussion uh, about you know, where to, who to support and how much or what level and, and who to say no to. It's also good for us to, to write those checks because it makes it, it keeps it very personal for us. And um, that's important. I don't know if you appreciate just how unusual what you've just described is. Um, <laughs> when, you know, we, we met um, early on and we, I remember we all had a breakfast in, in, in Washington, D.C. And uh, well, Dorothy, it was actually Dorothy McAuliffe and I uh, talked to you about mm-hmm. what we were doing at Share Strength and hoping you'd support it. And I think somewhere, this not to accuse you of making a snap decision, but somewhere on the drive back to Charlottesville, I remember you, you called and said, we're in, we, we want to do this. And it was so stunning to me because 99% of the time, if we're at Share Strength or most other nonprofits having a conversation with a somebody who's who's a philanthropist and really wants to make a difference in the community, uh, they will tell us, "Well, here's the name of the executive director of our foundation, and it meets next July, so you have to wait five <laughs> months." And there's nine other board members, and they'll all have to take a look at this. And literally years can go by before anything gets done. I mean, I love the fact that it has to be personal to you, as you described, Renee. And it also must take a certain level of just almost like confidence and intuition and gut that, yeah, this is something we want to do. We, we were stunned at your request. We couldn't, believe, well, we couldn't believe what you asked for. It took us a few minutes driving home to get over the shock of how much you asked for. Well, and, and, and they and, said, well, these folks are serious. And I said, okay, let's, let's talk about it. And about halfway home, we, we happily jumped on board. Well, you know, we were in the car together, so we had to talk about something. Um, I will say... You all are really, really great at presenting a case. And, and Billy, I've told you this many times before, what No Kid Hungry does and Share Our Strength does is just that. You spread it out and share. And you attack a problem at so many different levels that you're going you're gonna to solve it at some level eventually. And that just made sense to us. Um, If you're going to attack hunger in schools, you've got to be able to do that. And what I love even more is everybody matters. Every gift matters. A $5 gift is just as important as my gift. It takes all of us. And I see that as building bridges in a time when we really need that. You know, it's not, you have to come together because who's going to look at a hungry kid and tell them they're not going to feed them. We all want to feed children. And I see that as a huge bridge builder in a time when we need it. 
Hey, Billy, back up a second. Don't get us wrong now. We're not perfect because if we get a request we don't like, we'll say uh, our board meets next July and our executive director will review it. And then, you know, we, we wait a couple of years go by and they forget about us. So we, we play that game too. Yeah, or or send, send in a proposal somewhere between 50 and 75 pages. One, one of those kind go. of things. We, yeah. we get that a lot too. Our, our, our grant department will review your proposal, blah, blah, blah. We, we can play that game. <laughs> Uh, Renee, say a little bit about the Monday Fund. That's something that you've been involved in from the very beginning, and it's our effort to really aggregate the, the firepower that we need to attack this problem at scale. Can you give us a little sense of what that's all about? I love the Monday Fund because it is uh, a campaign to raise money to get no kid hungry in every state across the country to have a real presence and an infrastructure. The Monday Fund, pre, pre-COVID, we, No Kid Hungry and the Monday Fund, had worked hard to bring childhood hunger down to one in seven in some states. We are now one in four across the country, children who are food insecure and hungry. So what I love about the Monday Fund is these funds go in and provide nutrition programs. They maximize the available nutrition programs and make sure that the county school systems, cafeteria workers, cafeteria managers understand what they have at their fingertips to maximize food for children. They send people in to navigate in high need communities for, in the age of COVID, meal delivery. These funds also make people aware of the SNAP, the EBT for COVID assistance. It just, again, attacks at every level, but it gets, the Monday Fund gets funding in every state. And when the pandemic shut down schools, Governor Roy Cooper said that they were in a great position because of No Kid Hungry and the Monday Fund because they understood that you had to have alternate food delivery. They learned that with breakfast after the bell, to feed children grab and go, to feed them in the classroom, to have a seamless service of food. Because of that, they realized that with insulated school bags, they could deliver food. The Monday Fund might provide a food cart. Well, during the pandemic, they provided insulated bags and alternative ways to keep food fresh, alternative ways to obtain nutritious food. John, you should tell your story about driving down the road into town. Yeah, it happened back uh, last fall um, in the middle of COVID still. And I was driving to town uh, on our highway. We, are, we live about 10 miles out of town and I have an office downtown Charlottesville. I, I drive in almost every day. And I got behind a, a, road, a line of traffic. It's a four-lane road, not much traffic, but it was backed up. And I looked up, and it was a yellow school bus backing up the traffic in, you know, mid-morning or so. And I thought, this is weird. The kids are not in school. Uh, why is a school bus? So, you know, it, it would stop and stop, and we worked our way. I got closer and closer, and we came around a curb, and I saw the bus stop and four or five cars behind it. And uh, at the end of a driveway, and this kid comes running down the driveway the door is open to the bus. He grabs a big sack full of um, food. He takes off running back to the house. And by the time I passed the driveway, I looked at the house and there were four or five kids on the front porch uh, having their breakfast. And so, wow. and so the wow. food was being, was being delivered. And this is Virginia. We, we've been fully funded now for No Kid Hungry for 
Uh, I think we were the first state to get fully funded uh, or meet our fundraising goal. And so, you know, the kids are are getting fed here uh, for the most part. So the Monday Fund started out with a goal of $50 million. We realized with the pandemic that we needed to up the ante, and we've raised it to $100 million. And of that $100 million, we have raised $62 million, I think, unless you've got a better count, Billy. No, um, I think that, that sounds right. So we are well on our way to raising that money because the needs are greater. What has been heartbreaking about the pandemic, Billy, you've, you've heard the story. We have a board member who's very involved in, in administration and a public school system. And she said to watch families pre-pandemic make the huge effort to pull themselves out of poverty only to see the pandemic thrust them back. So we have some challenges, but I think now is the time to act. Now is the time to do this, to have food insecurity as a national message that is out there. I think we can do it. I was going to say one of the things your comments point out is just kind of the connection between these issues of of hunger and health and education and ultimately our economy. Uh, these things are tied together. You don't just have to care about hungry kids to care about what we're doing because it, it affects every one of us. And, and Billy, you know this, you see the measures. If you feed kids, their grades go up, the scores go up, the, ch- the, the amount of um, misbehaving in class that takes a teacher away from teaching. I mean, they'll tell you this. We, we heard that when we traveled with you all. The teachers said, this is a pathway to success for children is if you feed them. So that seems like such a simple thing. It was that uh, it was we were in Baton Rouge, Billy, with you guys uh, after we went to the governor's mansion for dinner. Governor John Bell Edwards signed on. He and his wife were are, are very involved with No Kid Hungry. And early the next morning, we went to the uh, a school in Baton Rouge and it was the um, grab and go breakfast. Every kid who walked in the door, uh, the, the cafeteria staff was there early. They had this, the food ready all in bags. And every kid who came in got a, a grab, grab and go breakfast and barely slowed down. They walked to their, their home room or to their room and their teachers were waiting on them. And we followed some of the kids into a classroom. These were very young kids. And the teacher was the star teacher, the teacher of the year that, that year. And so, you know, wonderful teacher. And she talked about how important the grab and go breakfast were because every kid got one. Mm-hmm. So there was no stigma attached to it. Mm. Uh, and this was not really, uh, I wouldn't say, a inner city school. This was a fairly, uh, you know, mid-range school. But every kid took, took a, a grab and go. They were sitting there eating their breakfast. We're talking to them, the teacher's talking. And she said, she was telling us what a huge improvement it made in the early morning hours, obviously, because the kids were fed, they were happy, they were ready to learn. And she said, it's, uh, the difference has been astonishing just basic, basic breakfast, get the kids fed. And that's, yeah. you know, that's what it boils down to. That's so important to hear, John, because, you know, usually most things we work on in the world, uh, there's a there's a time lag before you see a return on the investment. Here, the return is immediate, right? You see it within the hour. You feed these kids and they start to <laughs> behave and perform differently. Where else do you get that kind of ROI? We were starving. We, we, didn't, we didn't get breakfast that morning, okay? We, <laughs> I wanted to grab and go, and Renee would let me grab one, and we... We'd skip breakfast. 
Um, I, I, I want to wind our way in a moment just to the Innocence Project. But uh, before I do that, uh, I was going to ask you, you know, I was I was kind of looking at my different notes of things that I've uh, learned about you all over the years. And I know that there's a John and Renee Grisham writer in residence at the University of Mississippi. I know that Renee's been on UNC boards, the Innocence Project. And I'm thinking back, uh, John, to you many years ago at a tender age, uh, imagining yourself as a baseball player. And then at one point, and then of course there's the, the, the ball fields you've built uh, for kids in the community, but imagining yourself as a baseball player and at some one point imagining yourself uh, as a lawyer um, and uh, deep down imagining yourself as a, as a writer. Uh, did you ever, as you're selling books out of the back of your car, that first book, do you, do you ever imagine yourself as a philanthropist? No. Uh, I'm not sure what we were thinking 30 years ago when the first book came out. It sure, it sure wasn't, it sure wasn't this. Uh, we were hoping that um, after, after practicing law for 10 years and not starving, but getting close, <laughs> we never, we never really could get ahead. And we had, you know, kids and all that stuff by the end, been married for 10 years. We were hoping that the, the first book of time to kill was a flop. Uh, didn't sell and we were hoping with the second book, the firm, that we could uh, expand the readership. I had a better publisher. You know, maybe we could take a step up and, and make a little more money. And then maybe the third book or fourth book or fifth book would, you know, really pay off financially. And we could uh, have some breathing room as I wrote and as I also practiced law at the same time. That's kind of what I remember thinking a little bit. But we didn't talk about it that much because what happened when, when the firm came out 30 years ago, early March of, uh, of 91, it became uh, you know, an overnight bestseller and things changed for us uh, dramatically. Just in a matter of weeks and months, our lives were uh, far different. And then the, the success of the first few books and then the movies on top of that really um, threw us for a curve. We, you know, it, it knocked us off our stride or whatever the stride was. We weren't, we weren't prepared for it, but we, you know, we adapted. And now, you know, Many years have gone by, and we've sort of gotten used to this vocation, uh, this lifestyle. And I think probably 25 years ago, 20 years ago, we realized that we were uh, earning a whole lot more money than we could ever spend, uh, frankly. And we we saw a lot of needs, and we began looking around and saying, "Okay, how can we help? What should we do? What should the priorities be?" And uh, that started this road. This, this road to philanthropy that we have, we're still on, and we um, that we thoroughly enjoy. Uh, it's 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 so rewarding to have a small part in feeding, you know, lots of hungry kids. Well, Renee's also made several references to the Innocence Project, and not everybody will know what that is. I, I know it's an effort that's been uh, hugely successful in exonerating a number of uh, hundreds of mm-hmm. individuals who were. Uh, unfairly convicted. Uh, can you just share with us a little bit about the Innocence Project, how you got involved in it, what it's focused on today? Well, it goes back to a book. Uh, I wrote one book of nonfiction. It was published in 2006. It's called The Innocent Man. It's a story of a guy from a small town in Oklahoma who uh, was convicted, framed of a murder he did not commit, went to death row and came within five days of being executed. And he got a stay and he eventually was exonerated by DNA and walked out. And I read his story and I was fascinated by it. So I, I decided to write that as my first true story. Uh, that research took me into the world of wrongful convictions. And 
And once I realized the, the scope of the problem and how many thousands of innocent people are in prison, uh, it changed me forever. I mean, I, I'm still, you know, still, I still correspond to guys in prison who uh, I can't get out. We, we, we can't get out. A lot of them we have. But the, the, you have to accept the fact that we have thousands of innocent people in prison. A lot of people don't believe that, but those of us who work in this area uh, know it's true. It's a huge problem. Uh, getting them out is, is very difficult, uh, even sometimes with DNA testing. And the Innocence Project takes only DNA cases uh, as opposed to non-DNA cases. And in most cr- serious crimes, there's no DNA. So it's there, you really can't help the defendant. And we litigate coast to coast. You know, we spend a lot of money every year uh, trying to get innocent people out. Our mission is very simple. It's to free the innocent and lock up the guilty. You know, we're not a bunch of pushovers when it comes to violent crime. Uh, we, we believe that guilty people should be put away. Uh, but there are so many innocent people we can't get out. And in 25 years, we have exonerated 370 is our number, which is a pretty low number for the 25 years of hard work and you know, lots of money. But as I said, it's, it's very difficult to get an innocent person out of prison once they go there. Uh, there have been over 2,000 exonerations all told in the last 25 years from various uh, other projects, various other uh, lawyers getting people out. Uh, but it's a, it's a huge problem uh, in this country. And, uh, you know, it's something that we, we're, trying to, we're trying to fix. We, we advocate in all 50 states. We, we have a package of laws and reforms we'd love to see passed that would uh, make wrongful convictions um, very hard to come by. You, whenever, you can never eliminate all of them. We could eliminate probably 90% if we would change our laws and we, the laws would be easy to change if we just had the the guts to do it. And we don't. Uh, So we we work slowly. For example, we finally have, I think every state now has a compensation scheme to, to pay back money to a person who's been exonerated. Once you spend 20 years in prison for somebody else's crime, you get, uh, you know, 50,000 bucks a year or something like that for uh, compensation. We finally got every state to buy into that. That took uh, a long time to push that legislation. Automatic DNA testing is something that we push constantly to to uh, to try to get our clients out. So it's it's a lot of uh, it's a lot of work. It's a it, it takes a lot of money. There's not one dime from uh, the government because the government is the reason these people are, are locked up. And there's no there's no provision in any kind of government budget to to free the innocent because the government denies they're they're innocent. So it's um it's it's tough work. It is extremely rewarding uh, when you get somebody out. When you walk them out after 15, 20, 25 years in prison, uh, we have a a big annual uh, party in New York, uh, a huge fundraiser for us and a thousand people in a big ballroom and all these, you know, um, sophisticated New Yorkers and lawyers and such. And it's a sellout every year. And every year uh, we bring in our, our guys, the ones who've been exonerated in the past 12 months. And there's usually six, seven, eight, nine, ten of them from all over the country. And these guys have, you know, served for 20 years. A few years ago, we had um, a guy from Illinois who, who, had, who had served 30 years in Chicago. Uh, we got him DNA tested. It was a rape case. He was completely cleared. The DNA nailed the real rapist who was also in prison. Anyway, we got the guy on an airplane and we flew him to New York for the party. And one day he walked out of prison in Illinois. The next day he's on a stage in New York City in front of um, a thousand people. 
there was not a dry eye in the house. I mean, it's a very emotional evening, but that's the kind of stuff that keeps us going. And, and it's, uh, again, it's, it's, it's really gratifying work. Oh, it's got to be incredible. And, uh, and I guess on the other side of the coin, there must be days where you just want to pull your hair out or almost mess with your sanity to know that uh, there's there's men and women in there that you're working with who are innocent and it's going to take time to get them out. And, I, and I've, I've read that, and this was not surprising, that um, 70% are, are people of color, black or brown, who have been unjustly yeah. convicted. Yeah, the, the Ooh, racism is a huge factor in wrongful convictions. It, it's a simple fact that we see all the time in the news now. Uh, the police, normally white policemen, just treat black suspects differently. And that's true at every from, from profiling to accusing, convicting, sentencing, executing. Uh, racism is a huge factor. Um, we're, we're always telling people how to support uh, the No Kid Hungry campaign, so most of our listeners know. But how about if uh, you're interested in helping the Innocence Project? Is the website just uh, innocenceproject.org? I'm just guessing, yeah. but yep. Okay, so that's the yeah, place that, to go. It's, it's, very, it's very easy to find. There, there are actually probably 50 or so various Innocence Projects around the country. It's a, we're all in a big network together. Most of them are at various law schools. There's one here in Virginia. There's one down the road in Richmond. There's one in Mississippi. A lot of your law schools have innocence projects. The law students love to intern and work on these cases. Our son, Ty, uh, 10, what, 12 years ago, went to death row in Mississippi as an intern to work with Eddie Lee Harris. I can't remember his name. Yeah, he had been on death row for a number of years, claimed to be innocent. And our son worked on the case. And again, this was probably 12 years ago. Uh, last month, the guy was finally exonerated after 29 years on death row and walked out of prison, uh, an innocent man. And that's the, those are the kind of cases that we deal with. And we talk about those cases um, all the time around the house. Uh, my, my family knows the names of a lot of these guys that I'm, are still in prison, that I I've still correspond with. I still try to get them out. But yeah, Billy, I pulled my hair out. It's very frustrating to know that these people are, are innocent and we can't get them out and some will never get out. Wow. Just absolutely incredible work and inspiring. Thank you both so much for taking the time. We've been talking with Renee Grisham, who is a board member of Share Our Strength, been a leader of our Monday Fund, a philanthropist in North Carolina and Virginia, and now all over the country, thanks to her active role with Share Our Strength and the No Kid Hungry campaign. And her husband, John Grisham, the author, 43 books and a new one coming. What's the new one, John? Well, it's a, it's a terrible title. The title is Suley, S-O-O-L-E-Y. means nothing until you read the book. It's a character's name. It's a, it's a book about college basketball. Uh, I love uh, sports stories, and we, we watch a lot of basketball around here. Renee's a Tar Heel fan. And so we watch a lot of games and uh, live for basketball season. I've always wanted to write a basketball novel and didn't have the story until COVID hit. So now it comes out next month. And Suley so, so doesn't need a lawyer or anything? It's, it's pure basketball? There's not a single lawyer in the whole book, as I can't remember. There might be one. I don't think so. Well, I, tried, I tried to go, again, tried to go a whole book with no lawyers. Okay. Can't wait. Sully, that'll be different. John and Renee, again, thank you so much, uh, not just for taking the time on this podcast, but for the enormous difference. I was going to say you've made for Share Our Strength. It's really for the lives of kids that we together try to uh, serve and help uh, and support and empower uh, all over this country. Uh, it's really Great to talk to you. And on behalf of the entire team at uh, Share Our Strength, we're grateful to you and uh, grateful to our producers of this 
podcast, Peter Ogburn and Paul Woodle. You've been listening to Add Passion and Stir. And if you've enjoyed this episode, you can go to our website at addpassionandstir.com and find other episodes. You can rate them and rank them and subscribe and share them with your friends. Uh, I'm Billy Shore. Thanks so much for listening. Mm-hmm.